uh, we're in Colossians chapter 3, verse 12. And last week, we looked at a number of things that the Christian is to put off. Because the believer now who is in Christ is no longer to be led along, directed by the things of the old nature. We've died and our life is now hidden with Christ in God, it told us in Colossians 3. And so now we're not just called to put off things because as you know, when you put off things, you undress, there's usually things that you want to get dressed back up in before you go out, right? And so it's the same for us as believers. We've taken off the old, but we're also to put on the new. And that's what we look at here this morning as we discuss the Christian's clothing. It says in verse 12, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, humility, meekness, long-suffering. Goes on to say in verse 13, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. So just some great encouragement, just some great uh, practical applications for us here who are in Christ. And like I said, Paul's been sharing how we put off the old man with his deeds, the old person before we came to faith in Christ. And now that we come to faith in Christ, it told us in Colossians 3 verse 9, 10 that we put on the new man. In fact, look at Colossians 3 verse 9. It says, do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. So Paul's made very clear, and that's why he says here in verse 12, therefore, you always look at what that's there for. It's to tie in what he's already discussed. You put off the old, you put on the new, who's been renewed in knowledge according to the image of Jesus Christ. So now because of those things now, Paul begins to direct us to put on certain things that are fitting for the life that is in Christ. For the life that has been made new, that's to resemble and reflect Jesus. We're to put on those things that are fitting. So Paul says, therefore. But before we get into some of those virtues and characteristics of the new person that's in Christ, he says something very interesting. He says, as the elect of God, holy and beloved. That's an interesting term, elect of God. What that means is that we're, we're chosen of God. We're, we're his. Now that does put a lot of unnecessary worry at times in people's lives who might wonder, well, am I one of the chosen ones? Am I, has God really chosen me? And we can kind of doubt and wonder this and question it. And you got some people that will say, well, I'm, I'm one of the elect. I'm saved. No matter what I do, I'm one of the elect. I've been chosen of God. But you see, the Bible teaches that not just are we the elect of God, but also we do have free will and there's man's responsibility. We have to answer to that calling of God and receive willingly, freely by our own choice, that gift of salvation, that grace of God. Peter ties it in to the foreknowledge of God in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2. He says that all of this is in accordance to the knowledge or the foreknowledge of God, that this choosing of God is based on his foreknowledge because God knows all that's gonna happen even before it happens. He knows the choices that you're going to make and so his election is based on that foreknowledge of what you are going to do. I believe the Bible teaches, yes, God is sovereign. 
Yes, indeed, he, he elects, but, but man has free will and there's human responsibility that we see very clearly. Some conclude that man has no freedom and that God does all the choosing. He chooses some to be saved, but then on the flip side, he chooses some that are to be damned to hell, which is not what I see in the character of God throughout scripture, because we see very clearly the most famous verse of all, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes, it's not that whoever is the chosen and believes will receive eternal life. No, it says that whoever believes will not perish, but have everlasting life. God says in 1 Timothy 2, verse 3 to 4, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. That would be very mean if God says, well, I desire all men to be saved, but not all are going to be saved because I haven't chosen some to be saved. That's not what we see in line with scripture. There are many verses that we see in God's word that reveal God's desire to save people but man's unwillingness to receive it, even as Jesus looked out over Jerusalem, he says, oh, Jerusalem, if you'd only known how much I long to gather you as a, as a hen gathers her chicks, but he says, you were not willing. The reason that people weren't saved, even when Jesus came, is that they weren't willing to receive him as their Lord and Savior. Likewise, there's many verses that reveal simply that the invitation is given to all. And the choice is yours to receive Jesus or reject him. John 1, 12 says, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. It's very simple. Nothing is presenting you or preventing you from receiving him today. It's all by his grace. You'll never hear the Lord say to you, sorry, I reached my quota today. There's no more salvations available. Or you'll never hear the Lord say, sorry, I would love to receive you, but you're not one of the chosen ones. Never. The Lord desires all to be saved. And the invitation has been given to all people. You need to receive that for yourself. Not only are we the elect of God, but we are holy and beloved. You know, we sometimes make a lot of that word holy where we think, oh man, I got I to gotta be holy now. Oh boy, I've got to really look very serious I've got to talk in the King James language now using these and thous because that sounds very holy, right? I've, I've got to really come across as like, I don't have any fun now because I'm holy. But you know that word holy simply means to be set apart. It's the Greek word hagios, which means that you're set apart to God, but also you're set apart from the things of the world. You're, in other words, you're, you're to be different now. You're not holy because of a certain action you've performed you're holy because you've now received Jesus as your Lord and Savior and that you're now hidden with Christ in God. You've turned to the Lord by faith in Jesus Christ. You are set apart to him and you're set apart from the things of the world. So again, there's to be a distinguishing mark, but that holiness has every bit to do with your attitude and not just action. So you're holy, but here's the great thing. We're, we're holy and beloved. I think that is so awesome. See, let that be the motivating thing that causes you to be set apart to the Lord is because we've been shown God's great love. He has showered his love upon us. Behold, uh, 1 John 3, um, 1 would go on to say, and let me read it to you here. I think it's 1 John uh, 3, 1. Behold what manner of love 
the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. He's like, just check it out. How great. Behold, how incredible this love is that God has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God. Let that be the motivating thing that causes us to be set apart to God and set apart from the world, to walk in holiness, to put off the old man, to put on the new, is because God has just showed incredible love towards us. We're saved, not because of how great we are. We're saved simply because God has showed great grace and love towards us. We see this in how God chose Israel and, and, and used Israel and, and also how he works in us. It says in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6 to 8, for you are a holy people to the Lord your God, speaking of Israel. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. And notice this, the Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people. For you are the least of all people. He's saying the Lord didn't choose you or set his love upon you because you were so wonderful. No, you were actually quite, you were nothing to behold ultimately. So the Lord is saying you were few in number. But he says, I've done this because the Lord loves you. Simple as that. Because the Lord loves you. And then likewise in, in 2 Timothy 1.9, God has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to, to your works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. God has done all these things for us and in us simply because of his grace and his love towards us. You are holy and beloved, all in and through Jesus Christ. His love and calling on our lives should be the reason we want to put off the things of the old person and now put on this new Christian clothing that reflects the person of Jesus Christ. Again, being renewed in the knowledge according to the image of Christ. If your image is of a God that's just trying to test you and put rules around you just to kind of cause you to suffer a little bit because you know you deserve it kind of a thing, if that's your image of God, it's not gonna be fun living these lives for him. But when you reflect on the goodness of God, he's a God that loves you and he's called you and he set you apart to live in the blessing of Jesus Christ, suddenly you realize how wonderful it is to live for Jesus, how great life is in Jesus, how much joy there is to be found in Jesus because God is a loving God and he's a God that loves to bless you. You bless those that you love, don't you? That's, that, that's usually a byproduct of our love towards somebody is that we wanna bless them. And this is what God does for us. He blesses you. And so he's put things around us to say, here's how you're gonna be blessed. Here's how you're gonna walk in this joy of Jesus. It's not gonna be by those things that you once did. Those things didn't bring pleasure or joy to you. It's gonna be found in living a life that's set apart for me and putting on that new character of Christ, the new clothing that's befitting of a Christian and that reflects Jesus. Jesus, Jesus says, this is the way that you're going to experience the blessed life in me. It's all based on his love towards us that he wants to do these things for us. So. Paul's gonna lay out now the characteristics and the attitudes of the person that has been made new in Jesus. And before we get to them, yeah, I know, verse one still, I'm running out of time. Um, <laughs> notice though that these are, are qualities or virtues that are wholly to do with our personal relationships with one another. None of these virtues that we've read already, verses 12 and 13, are existing for the person themselves. 
right? There's no virtues of efficiency or being a hard worker. It has everything to do with our relationships now with one another. Christianity is all about community. In fact, it's what we've all been created for. Community, we've experienced it uh, just being invited into the relationship with God and the, the Trinity where there's been uh, a community existing for all of eternity. Now God invites us in to enjoy that with him and with one another now as the church and as the family of God in community with one another. So these are things that are to benefit and bless one another. You know, the plagues of society has not been how can we get things done? Or how can we advance in industry? When we break it down, the real issues in society lie within the problems of our living together. Well, the word of God speaks right into that to show us here's how we can have a society. Here's how we can have a culture. Here's how we can have a community now that is going to be a blessing and, and fill with joy one with another. Here's the attire that is fitting for a Christian and it's that which will have great benefits to society. So Paul says, verse 12, they're put on tender mercies. Tender mercies is simply having compassion. When you see a need or you see someone in need, we don't just look at that and go, oh man, that's a real bummer. So glad I'm not you. We don't just kind of look at that and go, well, you know, good luck with that. We, we come along with, we, we are as Christians now to have compassion to where we say, Man, I, I just want to have mercy. I want to bear that burden with you. I want to come alongside in that mercy and compassion towards you. You know that anybody got a King James version with them on their laps? Okay, so you'll see the reading of this translated not just tender mercies. It says bowels of mercies, which is an interesting one. But in this day, you see, they believe that the deepest emotions, the most real affections, lied within the deepest core of you, which they thought were, you know, the bowels, right? Uh, so they referred to it as that. Don't try using this today to sound more biblical, like, honey, I just love you so much, I feel it right in my bowels. That doesn't <laughs> translate today. Doesn't go over so well in these days. But the idea is having this deep concern and compassion for others that just kind of lies right within the pit of your, of your gut to where you say, I gotta respond to this. I gotta, I gotta be moved towards that and moved to mercy. That's how Jesus was when he saw the crowds gathering together. And Jesus, I'm sure, was ready to check out, say, man, I need to put my feet up for a bit. But it says he was moved with compassion because he saw the crowds coming as, they were a sheep, as, as though they were sheep without a shepherd. Jesus had that compassion and mercy that caused him to be moved now towards care and compassion. I'm, okay, no, I'm not even gonna, um, okay, I'm gonna move on. <laughs> Kindness, next. This speaks of <clears throat> being helpful or, or beneficial to others. It's, it's translated as goodness elsewhere in scripture. We like being around people, don't we, that are kind, that are, are showing goodness. These are the kind of people we like to hang out with. Now, the same root of this Greek word was used by Jesus when he referred to the yoke that he had that was easy. That's that same root word for kindness or good. It was, it was gentle in other words. It wasn't heavy or hard. Are we those that kind of are heavy and hard toward others? Or do we show kindness and goodness and gentleness towards others? Because those are marks of that new creation in Christ. Paul says, put on kindness, and then also put on humility. We're not gonna be expressing the new man well if we're always 
thinking of ourselves, if everything is kind of about us, humility is that which now causes us to not just think you know, less of ourselves, but to think of yourself less. Not to think less of yourself, it's to think of yourself less, to, to where you say, it's not about me. I want to walk in humility. I want to consider others better than myself and, and consider how I can minister and help those around me. And, and Paul taught on that in Philippians 2, verse 3 to 4, when he said, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. And he went on to say in Philippians 2 how Jesus modeled that so wonderfully when he did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon himself the, the form of a bondservant. And then he humbled himself even to the point of death. Jesus walked in humility. He humbled himself for the greater good of all. And then meekness. Meekness, we oftentimes, you know, can define as wimpiness. We're like, I'm not meek. No way. The meek are, no, they're wimpy. They're just kind of weak. We sometimes look at it that way. But meekness is not about weakness. Meekness simply means strength under control. It's also a character that is attributed to Jesus, and it's used in that autobiographical statement he gives in Matthew chapter 11, verse 29, when he says that he is, he is lowly, he's, he's meek. It speaks of being in control of your emotions. It's not letting the old characteristics rise up. It's dealing with difficulty in a gentle way. That was Jesus. He was meek. He was gentle. There were times where he showed people who was boss. He wasn't weak, but he did so under control. He didn't let the emotions get the better of him. Meekness is going to be that which will flow out of humility. And then long-suffering. We usually think of this word as suffering long. It's a word you like to use for yourselves and what you're doing oftentimes Sundays when the messages get a little bit, you know, over the time here. Um, but long-suffering is something we think of oftentimes as suffering long. We want to dispel it from our vocabulary, but it really just simply speaks of having a patience that doesn't allow your circumstances to get the better of you. You may be experiencing some hardships, but what you do is you, you persist on without wavering. That's long suffering. You're not gonna bow to the pressures of the things around you. You're long suffering saying, you know what? I'm going to be able to make it through. I've got God with me on my side. He's going to help me to continue on. And perhaps somebody is providing that hardship in your life. And it's long-suffering that keeps you from reacting the way that you might like to towards them. It's being slow to avenge any wrongs. That's long-suffering. The ancient world now, interestingly, did not the ancient world wasn't known or defined by these virtues. When you look at all these things, mercies, kindness, these were not things that you said, yeah, look at that ancient world there. This is what I really think of when I think of people back then. That was not the case. These were not things, you know, meekness, right? Humility were not things men were putting on their dating app bio back in these days here. William Barclay interestingly said this, Christianity brought mercy into this world. It is not too much to say that everything that has been done for the aged, the sick, the weak in body and in mind, the animal, the child, the woman, has been done under the inspiration of Christianity. Christianity and Jesus has ultimately changed things greatly. The question is now, has he changed you? Has he changed you so that you can now have that kind of impact and change in this world? As we put off the old, 
and I put on the new. Well, the new Christian clothing just continues on. Look at verse 13. Verse 13? My goodness. Okay. Bearing with one another and forgiving one another, if anyone is a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. Now, there are times where we will need to put up with one another in the body. Do you know how often I have had to put up with different personalities or attitudes or weird traits? That's just coming from the staff here at, at the church. Um, I've had to really put up with a lot, of, a lot of stuff here. But here's what helps me get through that, is that they're having to put up with a whole lot more dealing with me because I'm no picnic and you're no picnic. We have to deal with one another in these things, don't we? But we remember that we bear with one another because we're together, we're linked together in Christ. And so we become those that are, are quick to forgive and not hold grudges. When a person is not willing to forgive, they allow the enemy to get a foothold and stir up those kinds of feelings of, of bitterness and anger that just kind of grow over time when we're not willing to forgive. When we forgive, we're not just benefiting the person, we're benefiting ourselves because we're letting go now of all those things that we're kind of just brewing on and thinking about and allowing to fester and grow to a greater degree in our lives. When we are ready, ready to forgive, we're freeing ourselves from all those things as well as the other person. It may, be, it may feel good at times, you know, to hold something against another, but aren't you glad that Jesus didn't do that to us? Amen. Aren't you glad that Jesus forgave us completely and entirely? He didn't say, you know what? I forgave you, but man, you keep doing these same things. And I'm just kind of done with forgiving you right now. Jesus doesn't do that. Say forgiving God. And so Paul makes it very clear. The word makes it very clear. Even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. You may not feel like forgiving, but forgive others because you know you've been forgiven. Jesus has done this for us. I read this on Twitter. Saved people are both forgiven and forgiving. Unforgiving people prove that they have never known God's love and mercy. That quote came from Mr. T of all people. Mr. T is lighting it up on Twitter. That guy is saved and he is preaching it. Man, that guy is on fire. I love it. You would never have known that came from Mr. T. Seriously. It's pretty awesome. So forgiveness is the key to putting away these old sinful traits that we've seen in these, in these verses here. It's the key to putting all those things that we've looked at last week. The things to put off forgiveness is the key to really walk in that new character, in that new person in and through Jesus Christ. You know, when the Moravian missionaries first went to the Eskimos, they could not find a word in the language for forgiveness. So they had a compound one. This turned out to be that word that I will not be trying to pronounce in front of you there. But it's a formidable looking assembly letters, but it's an expression that has a beautiful connotation for those who understand it because it means not being able to think about it anymore. That's what forgiveness does. It says, I've let it go. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna dwell on this. I'm not gonna think, I'm not gonna hold this against you. I'm not gonna think about it anymore. I'm gonna let it go. That's what forgiveness does. It frees you from those things, forgives the other person, and it brings about reconciliation. So stop dwelling on things you don't like in others or what others have done against you. Dwell on what Jesus has done for you and extend the same now to others. Now, we get to see kind of the finishing 
touch of our Christian clothing. There in verse 14, it says, but above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. It's like as a kid, when you'd go outside at wintertime, you could be bundled up, sweatshirt after sweatshirt, and what's your mom gonna say? Make sure you put a coat on. It's like, no matter what you're wearing, you could be sweating to death, and she's like, put a coat on. It's like, nothing matters unless that winter coat is on, right? I'm like, come on, mom. But, but here we're seeing now, that Paul is in a sense saying the same thing. You know what, all those other characteristics, they're key, they're important. But the real key now is that you put on love. Because it's very easy to demonstrate all those other things, but to do so without love. You could come alongside somebody and show compassion and mercy, but just in your heart be like, why can't this person get it together? Why do I have to come in and bail them out? Why do I have to help them? Why can't they do this for themselves? Oh my goodness. And, and, and we can be walking, you know, uh, expressing humility on the outside, you know, and saying, well, I'm gonna come and just serve you here. And on the inside, we're saying, man, I am so amazing. I hope people are, are catching this. I hope people are seeing what I'm doing. And we could be totally doing all those things other virtues, but yet not have love. Love is the thing that's going to kind of bind all these things together and cause them to function in perfection. Love is the bond of perfection. Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 13 that you could do all these great things. You could have faith that moves mountains, but if you do not love, you're nothing. There are all these great gifts, but if you have not love, you're just a, gang, a, a clanging symbol. Love acts like that belt that keeps all these things in place. It's that genuine Christian love. It's a love that's beyond us, and it comes to us through the Holy Spirit that, that bonds all these great virtues into that work of perfection. Without love, we can't expect to make a difference or show a difference in the world. Jesus said as much. He said, guys, it's not going to be just your humility or your compassion that's really going to Jesus says in John 13 35 by this all will know that you are my disciples if you have what love for one another <clears throat> Jesus says it's love that's going to be that identifying mark of that life that's been changed in and through Jesus Christ that's put on the new man it's love that's going to make that difference and the reason love is so key is because love is what drives us to be most beneficial and to be, most, be the most blessed uh, person to others. Because love is no mere emotion or feeling of warm fuzzies that shift with the times, as we oftentimes think of love today as just being some kind of emotional thing. That's not biblical love. That's not the word agape that, that Christianity began to really bring to the forefront and demonstrate a love that goes beyond just emotion because agape, biblical love, is about an unconditional love. It's about a sacrificial love. It's not a love that's given because of what you're going to get in return. It's a love that's given despite what you might get in return. It's a love that says, I'm going to lay down myself for the benefit of someone else, no matter what. That's agape love. That's what Christianity and Jesus began to model for us and set apart here. That's why love is so key. It's what allows all these other graces to be fused together into a harmonious perfection. 1 Corinthians 13, 13 says that now abide faith, hope, and love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Love is so important. Well, <clears throat> verses 12 to 14 really reveal to us this new 
Christian clothing were to put on. But now we begin to look at, in verses 15 to 17, kind of how we're to be led along and, and guided along to see how are we doing with these things? Are we walking in that will of God? Look at what verse 15 says. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts to which also you are called in one body and be thankful. Let the peace of God rule in your hearts. You know that word rule is kind of taken from this athletic term and it speaks of an umpire. An umpire that's calling safe or out, right? And that's kind of what the peace of God does in our lives. It begins to reveal to us, am I walking in a way that's right? That's according to the will of God. Is what I'm doing safe or is it not? When I go shopping, I like to have either my wife or my daughter with me. Because I like to, you know, when I'm trying on something, I want to have a second opinion. I want somebody to be able to be there and say, yeah, you know what, Dad? That is not going to work for you. That's out. Take that off. Or they can say, that's pretty safe. That should fly. That'll be all right. And I like to have some of there. And this is what the peace of God does in our lives is it brings about that kind of determining factor in our lives to realize, is what I'm doing good? Is it right? Is it in line with God's will and his way for my life? If you're wondering what God's will is, this is a good indicator. Is there a peace in your heart? Let this peace be that do it or don't do it umpire in your own heart. You know, an umpire also brings control into a game. We see that with referees in hockey all the time, right? When things start getting a little bit messed up, the, the, the refs are right there to kind of bring control. The umpires are right there in a baseball game to, to you know, eject a, a player if they're doing something or acting out of control. And we can feel like that at times in our lives, right? We can feel like things are maybe spinning out of control, but we can have God's peace now ruling in us and bringing about that control, comforting us when things don't make sense and allowing us to simply trust his will and have a peace that goes beyond that understanding of ours. Paul goes on to say, of this peace, it says, to which you also were called in one body and be thankful. We were called to come together and experience that, that peace together to where there's not to be conflict. You think about the Jews and the Gentiles in the early church coming together. These were two groups of people that really didn't like each other. And yet, because of what God has done, they've been able to come together and experience that peace and to walk in thankfulness, not just with one another, but for one another and for what God was doing in each of their lives. We're called together in one body and be thankful for that. Now, before moving on to verse 16, there are times where we might feel like we have the peace of God and feel very comfortable with a certain decision. But remember Jeremiah 17, 9 says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Remember Jonah, when he was called by God to go to Nineveh, what did Jonah do? Uh, he looked at a map and said, where's the furthest place from Nineveh? And he went down to uh, the, the sea and he sees a boat sitting at the port there for him. And Jonah's thinking, Lord, thank you for providing for me a boat that will take me as far away from Nineveh as I can get. And he gets in the boat and they set sail. And what's Jonah doing? He's sleeping. Jonah, I would say, was at peace. But he was not in God's will. We have to be careful that, that peace is not the only factor. And this is where 
Paul so wisely brings up verse 16 because we can sometimes have a sense of peace over something that's not God's will. But verse 16 now begins to reveal to us the real deciding factor and authority in determining God's will and desire for us. Look at verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. See, if we think we're seeing God's will, but it contradicts the word of God, then we are wrong no matter how much peace we might feel. I've seen it among Christians before where they can feel justified in contradicting God's word because they just feel like, well, I have a peace about it. Well, I'm leaving my husband or I'm leaving my wife because I just don't feel like we love each other anymore. And I've found love with somebody else. And God would just want me to be happy. I've heard people say that. God's not interested in you being happy. He's interested in you being holy and walking according to his word. And when you walk in holiness, you're gonna walk in happiness. But you see, it's the word of God that becomes that deciding factor for us. Never, if, if something we're doing contradicts the word of God, should we have a peace about that? And so it's not just the peace that rules in your heart, which is very important for us, but it's, does this line up with the word of God? So Paul says that the word of Christ dwell in you richly. That word dwell means to be at home in your heart. And, and there's a lot of people that just are failing to know the will of God because they don't know the word of God. The word of God hasn't taken root in their lives. It hasn't been at home in their lives. That's why we, Sunday mornings, we wanna put a great emphasis on the teaching of God's word. We want to go through the word of God, but so that the word of God will go through you and transform you. And I'm so thankful that the word of God has transformed my life. And I've been so thankful to hear the wonderful testimonies of many people that have been transformed simply through the, through the word of God. It's, you're not gonna be transformed coming to this church because of the great lights that we have or the great worship team or the subpar coffee that we'll soon be serving at the church. You're not gonna be transformed by those things. You're gonna be transformed by the word of God. We got nothing else to give you that's gonna help but the word of God. So we don't wanna draw people in because look at all this flashy stuff that's going on. We just wanna say it's the word of God that's gonna change the people of God. So let the word of Christ dwell in you. Let it be at home. And let it cause you now to respond to others with, with singing and admonishing, teaching one another. When the word of God's taking root, it's gonna naturally just begin to flow out of you in a wonderful way. The church, the early church would gather together and they would sing out psalms and hymns and it'd be very scripturally based and they would just begin to rejoice in all that God's done. And as we gather together, I'm so thankful just to come and worship together and just to share of the great things God has done. But let that word of Christ just begin to flow out of you as it flows into you. Let it flow out of you. Share it with people. Tell people what you've been reading through the week and encourage them in it. And then lastly, verse 17, whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So as we've looked at the old clothes we used to wear and now have seen the new clothes we are to wear, we're reminded that whatever you do, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. That's another determining factor. Is what I'm doing, am I able to do it in the name of the Lord? Which means, am I able to do it in the same kind of character, nature, and, and reflect Jesus? Is this honoring to him? Does this reveal Jesus in what I'm doing? If not, then that's not something I want to be involved in. 
Do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. And that again allows you to walk in safety knowing that what I'm doing is honoring to the Lord. It's according to his will. On the flip side, I love the fact that, you know, what we do, all that we do, we don't just do in the name of the Lord, but we do unto the Lord. And that's caused me to have a lot of just comfort when there are things that maybe as this new person, as I'm putting on these new clothes, there are times where I'm like, I don't want to be forgiving. I don't want to show compassion to that person. But when I say, you know what? Do it all unto the Lord. And I go, yeah, Lord, I'm not just doing it for that person. I'm just doing it for me. I'm doing it ultimately for you. And you're the one that I want to glorify. You're the one that I want to live for. You're the one that I want to be magnified in and through my life. So all that you do, whether word or deed, don't just do in the name of the Lord, but also do unto the Lord. And give thanks to God the Father through him. Give thanks to God for all that he's done to you. And may we now begin to resemble and reflect him in all that we do. Worship team, would you come up? And we're going to close with a, a song and maybe just half a song. Yeah, okay, all right. <laughs> so listen, um, three areas or relationships where this new heavenly wardrobe is going to be tested is mentioned next. Marriages, parents and children, and employers and employees. So next week, we're going to get into that, starting in verse 18, and we're going to look at this new man with this new wardrobe and how it's to cause us to live differently within these interpersonal relationships with one another, all right? And when I say new man, please, ladies, you know, I'm not just referring to a male person. I'm referring to humanity, right? You get that? In case some of you are going, he's so sexist. Why does he have to only talk to men? You know what I'm trying to say here. All right, let's pray. Lord, thank you for this word today. Continue to shape us, Lord, making us more like you, being renewed in knowledge according to the image of God. Let us, Lord, put off the things of the old man and put on the things that now really resemble you. Help us in that. Strengthen us to do so. Clothe us in your character. Lord, we pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. Let's stand together.